I was here last Sunday putting things together uh, for church when the news began to break of a shooting at a, at a church in Texas. And I know that we're well aware of the news of what happened um, during worship at First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, a town that maybe you had never heard of. I'm from Texas and had never heard of Sutherland Springs, a very small town, but uh, now the focal point of a great tragedy. And, uh, you know, the term, the term mass murder shouldn't even exist, but unfortunately it does, and it's all too common in our country these days. Even just very recently, we've seen it in the news uh, in New York and in Las Vegas. But I'll be honest, there's something about it happening in a church that pains me in a different way. And I'm sure part of that is because I'm a pastor. But then another part of it is, for me, is this shock that I feel comes from this belief I have that that stuff just doesn't happen in church. That's the, you know, for people who love God, those things shouldn't happen, right? <laughs> and my guess is that all of us have a little bit of that belief rattling around inside of us that says, listen, if I love God, if I serve God, bad things won't happen to me. Or at least... Bad things may happen, but not as often or not as bad as, as maybe they happen for other people because I love God and therefore life should go better for me. Uh, things will turn out better for me. But that's not what Romans 8 tells us. And as we're in Romans 8, what, what the Apostle Paul actually says in this great chapter, maybe the greatest chapter in the Bible, is that Christians are subject to all the same terrible circumstances as everybody else in the world. The same stuff happens to Christians that happens to anybody else. But the Christian hope is far better than what we even dare to imagine. The same circumstances happen to Christians as anybody else, but the Christian hope is greater than our imagination. And so what I want us to see today is this, that what happened in Sutherland Springs, Texas, happened to us. We are the church. They are our brothers and sisters. People we've never met and probably never will meet. And yet we are the body of Christ and therefore what happened to them happened to us. And there's a special kind of grief that ought to accompany that that is unique in the sense that it did happen in a church and to a church. And whether or not we ever face anything so direct as what they faced, I certainly hope we don't. I hope that never happens here or anywhere else in the places that we call home. Um, even if it never happens as directly to us, there's something about uh, evil and suffering that we face nonetheless. It may not be a crazed gunman who storms the church, but we're, we, we all face this reality, and therefore we need to get settled on some truths to govern how we respond. Evil and suffering are non-negotiable. It's just the way the world is. And so Paul in Romans 8 wants to ground us. He wants to get our feet on solid ground when it comes to this stuff. And so here's my question for us today. Can we have, as Christians, an appropriate grief in the face of things like this, and at the same time have courage? And I think Paul says we can have both. We can have both grief and courage in the face of evil. Grief, not despair, and courage, not retreat in the face of suffering in this life. Now, how can that be? Well, look at Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. Romans 8, 18. Um, Paul says to the church, he writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, 
are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. That's a large section of Scripture to try to digest. But think about what Paul is showing us here. He's talking about present sufferings and future glory. And he's showing us that there's a direct connection between the two. Present suffering and future glory. There's no contradiction for the Christian in those things. And you notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that future glory uh, cancels out present suffering as if bad things aren't really all that bad because one day we'll go to heaven. That's not what he says. He actually says that our future glory intensifies the present suffering. It makes us long for future glory all the more. Do you see what he says about the creation? Paul says the whole creation is locked in a state of misery and futility. He doesn't mince words when he talks about it. He says the creation cannot fulfill its intended purpose because of the treachery of sin. Something is terribly wrong. Things are not as they should be. And so Paul, he, he gives the creation uh, like a, a persona here. He talks about the creation like it's a person. And he says that it groans in agony. And the image he gives us is of a woman in childbirth waiting, the creation is waiting for the return of Christ because only at his return will the creation be freed from its slavery and its corruption. Now, this is hard for us to grasp. This is a massive truth. And especially when we look around, I mean, you, you're, you can see right behind me stunning beauty. You have to look behind me to see the beauty. Don't look at me in this case, okay? I mean, the creation is this beautiful, marvelous, intricate, brilliant thing that when we look at the stars and we consider all that God has made, it stuns us to think that this beauty, Paul says, is actually in a state of chaos and disarray. There's something terribly wrong with the way things have turned out because of sin. And the Bible tells the long and sad history of what, of what sin has done to corrupt and enslave the things that God has made. And so right here where we sit, everything that we're a part of is enslaved. It's futile. It cannot fulfill its intended purpose. And in some strange way, Paul says, the creation groans over this. It grieves. This is a problem. And Paul goes on to say, it's not just the creation that groans. He says, we groan. Look again at verse 23. He says, not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, 
the redemption of our body. Having the Spirit, we groan, Paul says. Being saved, being children of God, we grieve, longing for our ultimate redemption. There is a, there's a certain kind of joyful agony that comes with being a Christian. And maybe you know this well. There's a joyful agony that comes with being a Christ follower that on one hand, we have a perfect and indestructible hope reserved for us in heaven that what Christ has done for us cannot be taken away. It cannot be lost. It will not be diminished. Everything that Jesus came to give us, we will receive in full because of his faithfulness. But on the other hand, we live in a world that is enslaved and corrupted that is not as it should be. And the truth is not just out there. The truth is also in here. That if I'm willing to be honest, I'm not as I should be. None of us are. We are products of the curse. We are people who have wandered uh, far from God and possibly even have rebelled against God. And rather than punishing us, he's graciously forgiven us in Christ. But, but even now, as I stand redeemed in Christ, something's off. It's not as it one day will be. And so there's joy, but there's also agony in this for us. And so when we talk about the uniqueness of Christian grief, what we need to understand is that, that um, the promise that God gives us is not a promise only in time and space. And here, I, I'm gonna, we need to talk about two false beliefs that will, um, that will turn grief into despair if we don't see the truth instead. And when I say these two things, you're going to nod because these are two very pervasive beliefs even among Christians. The first one I've already mentioned is if I love God, life will go better for me. Things will be easier for me. Bad things won't happen to me. A lot of Christian teachers teach that explicitly. Most Christians believe that implicitly, that when bad things happen, I'm shocked, I'm stunned. This shouldn't be because I love God. But you see, that's not what the scripture actually teaches us, that we don't get better circumstances simply because we love God. All the harmful things that happen to us will happen to us that happen to everybody else. Um, cancer comes to Christians. Drunk drivers can hit Christians. Crazed gunmen can shoot Christians. Okay, we, that's, that's, we, there's no arguing that, I hope. Um, and in fact, if you look down at verse 35, skip over a little bit to verse 35. Listen to what Paul says. Now, this is, he's, he's saying this as an encouragement, but look at this little list he gives us. Verse 35, he says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Great question. Of course, the answer is nothing, no one, right? But then he gives this list. He says, well, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. That's not a hypothetical list. That's a real list of real things that, that really happen, okay? Um, now, to some more than others, in certain parts of the world, perhaps more than others, in times past, maybe more than others, but we see it that we're not exempt from these things. That's why in 1 Peter 4, Peter says to the church, I love this, he says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's happening among you as if some strange thing is happening to you. I love how Peter starkly points out the fact that people in the church who are suffering, that's 1 Peter's context, that they're surprised. He says, why are you surprised as if, as if some strange thing is happening to you? No, these things happen to everybody. Affliction, suffering, and evil come our way, and there's no exceptions in this, okay? It's a false belief to think that if I love God, I'll get an easy life. The second false belief is, well, 
if, uh, if something bad does happen to me, it's only because something good's about to happen. If God has closed this door, it's only because he's about to open a window and something good's coming right around the corner. I just know it, right? Um, again, this is a belief that I have. It rattles around in me, especially when bad things happen. That's my hope. Something good will happen to compensate for it. And of course, we love those stories, don't we? I mean, the story of the guy, he says, I got fired from my job. It was miserable. I was scared. But then I got a better job. And the better job would have never happened if I hadn't gotten fired in the first place, right? Oh, um, uh, I, uh, the person I wanted to marry dumped me. Ah, but then I met the person I was really supposed to marry. And now it's wonderful and I'm so happy. Uh, I was on, I was on my, I had my, I was had, I had 10 cents left in my bank account. I was, I was absolutely wiped out. And then I got a check in the mail for the exact amount of money I needed to pay the rent. Now, those things do happen. And when they happen, we should just fall all over ourselves in gratitude. Because that is utter grace. That is pure grace that God would ever do anything like that good for us in our moment of need. And he is a loving God and he gives us good gifts. But that, y'all, that is not a promise that the Bible gives to us. That if bad things happen, well, something good surely coming right around the corner because I love God and he loves me. That's, for every one of those stories I just shared, there are at least an equal number of stories of a guy who got fired and never got another job or a person who got dumped and never got married or the person who was down on their luck and the check never showed up in the mail, okay? And so if we, if we carry that false notion as if it's a promise of God that this bad thing's only happening so God can show up and do something good on the backside of it, really, that's, that's, not, that's not the promise of our faith. That's not the promise of the Scripture because God's primary goal for us is not better circumstances. His goal for us is not better circumstances. That's too low of a bar for God to set for his creation and for his children. And once we start to realize that, we can grieve without despair. Think about how despairing our grief would be if we're holding out hope that God is just allowing this to happen so he can give me something else good tomorrow or next week or next month. And what if that thing never comes? What if actually things get worse? We've all had that happen where it seems like it's dominoes, one after another. Why do bad things keep happening to me? If my grief is rooted in my circumstances, then I'm going to completely fall into despair because nothing good seems to be coming my way. Nothing good seems to be compensating for the loss. But look at what Paul says in verse 24. He gives us a wonderful insight here. We read it, and we're going to to read it again. And I'll tell you what, it's worth repeating maybe every day. It's worth reading maybe every day. Verse 24, he says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Christian hope is not rooted in this world. It's not rooted in our circumstances. We don't hope for what we already see. We don't hope for what might happen around the corner when I'm down on my luck. No, that's not what our hope is. And so when we grieve uh, our own experiences of evil and suffering, and when we grieve vicariously for others, what are we rooting our hope in? Paul says we're rooting it in the hope of Christ. He talks about it at length, that even the creation, in some sense, is groaning in anticipation for the return of Christ. What should that say about us? If the creation is longing for his return, shouldn't we be all the more? See, that's, that, that's where we root uh, all that we are. And so when, listen, 
if, if bad things happen to me, I'm not shocked because I understand that being a Christian is not a guarantee of better circumstances. And when bad things happen to me, I'm not secretly hoping that maybe something good is on the way to make up for it because I know that's not the promise of the Scripture and therefore I can grieve in a meaningful way. If, if, if life is all about our circumstances, then listen, your suffering has no meaning. You just, you just do all you can to get comfortable and avoid suffering because it has no meaning if it's rooted only in this life and the good or bad things that happen in this life. We don't need to build our hope on false promises of a better here and now because that's not God's ultimate goal for us. And I, and I, I know this is an extreme example, but we're talking about what happened in Sutherland Springs. Is there any good thing that could possibly happen there that's going to compensate for what happened last Sunday? Is there anything good Will God good, do good things through, through them? I'm sure he will. I'm sure he will. He's a good God. But it, the, 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 there, there's nothing good that can somehow minimize or negate or compensate for what happened last week because that's not the promise. It, only if our, if our grief is rooted in the hope that we have in Christ can we do something that, that nobody else in the world has the privilege of doing, only the Christian. Only if our grief is rooted in Christ can we actually look evil and suffering in the face and walk through it to the other side. We're not defeated by it. We're not subject to it as if somehow evil gets the last word. The Christian is the unique person in this world who can look it in the eyes, evil, the worst of all things. We can look it in the eyes and walk right through it onto the other side because our hope is not rooted in something that suffering can take away. Our hope is rooted in something that God has done to overcome it. It's our hope and our redemption in Christ that gives suffering meaning, that gives grief meaning. And so here's, here's the uniqueness of Christian grief. We're not just sad that something bad happened. Anybody can do that. We don't just feel sorry for people who were done wrong, whose lives were taken uh, unjustly and unfairly. No, our grief is this, that we are longing for a fulfillment that Christ has promised to bring, that he has the power and the desire to make all things right. That's real grief, but it's only temporary. And that's the unique grief of the Christian. We grieve only temporarily because our hope is not rooted here and now. It's an eternal hope. And see, that's why I'm connecting grief with courage. How can we have courage in the midst of something like this? You know, I, I, can, I can almost certainly say that there are people around our country today who did not go to church for fear of something bad happening, for fear of a copycat, for fear of what, man, what happened there could happen here. And so they didn't show up. And so, I mean, I understand the concern. I mean, it, if it could happen in such a tiny, uh, uh, you know, little seemingly peaceful town, surely it could happen anywhere. It could happen in Ridgeland, Mississippi, Right. I mean, I get that. I understand the fear that might come along with that. But think about what the church is. I mean, just think about what the church is. We worship a man who was unjustly murdered in public. We worship a man who not only died at the hands of his enemies, but he died for his enemies. At the center of our faith is a cross. A cross is an instrument of torture. It, it, it would, it would, it's a, such a foolish concept to enter into the Christian life thinking that this is a coddling, comfortable, easy life that God's inviting me into, when at the center of our faith is a cross. The Christian faith is not for the faint of heart in the first place. Jesus has called us to something 
that's, that's that, that to the to our flesh and to our just natural mind is an absolute contradiction. Why in the world would I want to follow a person who was crucified for what he did? And yet that's who we are. And so when we step into, uh, you know, in a lot of cultures today, when you step into faith, if you acknowledge Christianity and, and, uh, and put your faith in Jesus, you immediately put your life at risk. That's not true here. And, and so there's a sense of comfort here that is, is misleading, perhaps, because in a lot of places, that's not the case. You put your life on the line by naming the name of Jesus. Um, and that, now that doesn't mean we go looking for trouble. Okay, you know, we're not we're not being sadistic about that because, you know, because it's hard because Christ was crucified. I go looking for trouble. But it is the acknowledgement that trouble's going to find me just fine by itself. We don't have to go looking for it. The same evil, the same suffering that happens to anybody else will find its way to me and to us. And so the question becomes, what gives me courage in the midst of that? I mean, how can I have courage and not just do what maybe is natural to do, which is to retreat? Well, look at Romans 8:28. Some of y'all, this is your favorite verse in the Bible for good reason. This is one of the most precious verses in the Bible. Romans 8, 28, Paul says, And we know, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, God also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom God predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul is not comforting us with a false notion of, hey, I know it's bad now, but everything's going to turn out just fine. Don't worry. He's not giving us some flimsy promise. You know, things are rough now, but God's got something good coming around the corner. That's, that's not what he says here. No, Paul is saying that in the eternal power of God, God does something better than just throwing us a bone when we need it. God actually takes all things, Paul says. That means the good and the bad. He takes all things and he works them together. He redeems those things for those who have loved him and those who are called according to his purpose, even all the evil and suffering that you personally have experienced, God is able to, in an, in an eternal kind of way, to redeem that thing in the end. In other words, your bad things will turn out for good. And only God could have the power and the grace to produce that because God makes sure, for those who love him, God makes sure that evil does not fulfill its intended purpose. God allows evil. That's another sermon, perhaps. But God ensures that evil does not fulfill its intended purpose. And that's the point of Romans 8.28. Um, very famous illustration of this comes from Genesis. Don't turn to Genesis, but there, you know the story probably of Joseph. Joseph, whose jealous brother sold him into slavery... He went to Egypt as a slave. He was in prison for years. There was, a, there was awful things happened to Joseph. And yet God never forgot him, the scripture tells us. And eventually God raised Joseph up to, to an unthinkable position to second over all of Egypt. This foreigner who, because of God's favor, was the vice regent of the entire nation of Egypt. So that when a famine came upon the earth... Joseph became, in some sense, kind of a savior to his brothers who came in search of food that they might survive. Joseph was able to save his family, uh, having forgiven them 
and brought them in. It's an amazing story. But you know what Joseph says at the end of that story? A lot of you do know. He looks at his brothers, having forgiven them for their terrible sin, and he says, listen, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. Now listen, the things that happened to Joseph were evil. He doesn't say, ah, no harm done, water under the bridge, no issue. No, those things were evil. They were bad, and yet God circumvented the outcome. God stepped in in his sovereign power, and he redirected the end result so that the evil intention did not fulfill its evil purpose, and God's intention for good conquered it. That's, that's the story. Now, that's an example of it happening in real space and time in this life, and sometimes it does, but that's not what Paul's saying here either, right? That's not the point of this message. It's not that something good's going to happen next week if you just hold on. Here's what Paul says. This, this principle extends eternally. Look again at verse 29. He says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. And what that means is that God has eternally fixed something. He has set it in stone. This thing that God has fixed will happen. There is no stopping it. There is no reversing it. We are secure as God's children because he already knew us in advance. And Paul says he destined us in advance. He fixed something that is now an absolute certainty. And what is that? He tells us to be conformed to the image of Christ to be conformed to the very image of God's own Son, Jesus himself. We will be made into the likeness of Christ. That means that in the eternal state of our being, we will share, and, and, and this is such a mystery to me, but it's true, we will share in Christ's character and in his glory. And we will share his radiance. We will share his nobility. We will share his love. Everything that is true of Christ will somehow be endowed to us as his brothers and sisters, as joint heirs, we will be made like him. Not in the fullest sense that we become divine, of course, but we will be made like him in a glorious fashion because that is the promise that God has given us. And Jesus is the firstborn of that promise. The firstborn among many brethren. What does that mean? That's a statement of his resurrection. Elsewhere we see it stated as that he be the firstborn from among the dead. That Jesus didn't just die on the cross. You know, that's the focal point of our faith is a cross, yes, but that's not the end of the story because God raised him from the grave. That the, the, the tomb couldn't hold him. Death could not contain God's power. And so he glorified Jesus forever through his resurrection. And now the same promise extends to those who have faith in him that we too will be raised. 1 Corinthians 15. We will be raised. And everything that we've gone through in this life, Paul says right here, only serves to make us more like the glorious person of Jesus Christ. Everything that we go through, particularly the bad things, only serve to conform us further to the image of Jesus. And so that means, in some sense, the more we suffer, the more we become like him. The more we suffer, the more we become like him. Now, how does that give us courage? Well, think about it. If the very worst things in the world only serve in the end to make you more like Jesus. If the greatest evil in the world is just a temporary disruption that God will redeem and make right, then what on this earth do we have to fear? And I mean that literally. What on this earth 
do we have to fear? In the Psalms it says, what can man do to me? Jesus said, don't fear the person who can just kill your body. What else can they do to you? What, what, what can happen to us if, if even the worst of things only makes us, in, in the end, more like Jesus? See, evil people have been trying to destroy the church since the first day. Did you know that? They destroyed the founder, and they thought they were done. And then God raised him from the dead, and this little band of misfit disciples ended up taking, by the Spirit, taking this message of the resurrected Christ and have changed the world entirely. How in the world did that happen? You read through the book of Acts, they were, it, was, it was the attempt to squash it out has been there from the beginning. And yet the more that people have tried to either crush the spirit of the church or intimidate us into renouncing our faith, the more the church has thrived and grown. It's always been that way. It's always been that way. One of the fastest growing and most powerful movements of God's church right now is happening in communist China, where it is illegal. Because the church is like grass in the summertime. The more you cut us, the more we grow. That's what the church is. And it's always been that way. That when God's people suffer, we grow stronger. That's true in persecution. That's also true during a natural disaster. That's also true when a person in the church gets beaten and dies. That when we suffer, we grow. We get stronger, not weaker. Because our suffering does not destroy our hope. It intensifies our hope. The worse we get it in this life, the more we long for and groan for all that Christ has given to us and promised for us. And that's a hope that allows us to face anything that comes our way. Easier said than done, I know. But that's a hope that allows us to face anything. That's where our courage comes from. Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest preachers in American history, he wrote a sermon on Romans 8 when he was 18 years old. 18 years old. I'm going to quote you a paragraph. 18 years old. Just keep that in mind. Edwards wrote about this. He said, listen, if we really understand this hope, if we really understand what we have in Christ from Romans 8, he says, that man who understands it may look down upon all the whole army of worldly afflictions under his feet, however great they are and however numerous, and let them all join their forces together against him and put on their most rueful and dreadful habits forms and appearances, and spend all their strength, vigor, and violence with endeavors to do him any real hurt or mischief. And it is all in vain. He may triumph over them all knowing this. Light afflictions, which are but for a moment, shall only work out for him a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And that although sorrow continue for a night, yet joy cometh in the morning. Let a whole army of afflictions do their worst, and it will all be in vain to the person whose hope is rooted in Jesus Christ. Edward said it well, didn't he? Paul says it better. Look at the end of Romans 8, verse 37. One of the mountaintop verses of the entire Bible. Romans 8, 37. But in all these things, these afflictions, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What amazing courage 
do we receive when we really start to believe this? What kind of courage would God give us if we really believed in the truth of this word? Listen, to be a Christian is to take evil and suffering very seriously. If we say we're going to heaven one day, that does not trivialize what happens in the present. Some people will accuse us of that. That is false. We do not trivialize evil and suffering. It is real, and it is powerful, and it aches us to the core. But we groan within ourselves, and that groaning points us to something greater than what we experience. And that's the whole point. This world is not as it should be, and we weep over it. I'm not as I should be, and I should weep over that, and you're not either, okay? That's a problem, but we don't despair. We don't retreat, because God has equipped us to engage that darkness with an outrageous, hopeful courage. That's the unique blessing of being a Christ follower. The evil, listen, the evil that was done in Sutherland Springs, that was true evil. Um, There may have been extenuating factors, like mental health perhaps, I don't know. But it doesn't matter. At At the very, very root of what happened last Sunday, it was evil. It's the kind of evil that turns your stomach and it takes your breath away. It just takes my breath away to even think about it. Um, it's the kind of evil that brutally robs children of their, of their lives. It's the kind of evil that we can't really make sense of. It's the kind of evil that, frankly, can make us fearful and just not want to come to church at all, not want to put ourselves in harm's way. I get that. I totally get that. But you know what First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs, Texas, did today? You know what they did this morning? They gathered. They gathered as the church. Half the church has been killed. But they gathered. They gathered to weep. They gathered to worship. And in in the most counterintuitive way, they gathered together as the church to rejoice in hope that their grief is not meaningless. That that an evil man does not rule the universe, but that a sovereign God does. And even though the evil thing is real and it's, and it's something that they will grieve forever, their hope is not rooted in this life and therefore it's a true and courageous hope. And that's the same hope that we that, that cannot and cannot fulfill its intended It cannot fulfill its intended because in Christ we overwhelmingly through him who loved us. Let's pray. Father, right where we sit, would you break our hearts for uh, for such a broken world? I, I like to, to ignore it the best I can. I like to pretend it's not there the best I can. But Lord, open our eyes to reality. This is a a fractured, corrupted place that we call home. As many beauties and and blessings as there are, uh, the creation groans with longing and anticipation for something greater, for something immeasurably greater.
And Father, would you, you know, it, it says, we just read it, we groan within ourselves. Uh, we, we, we suffer agony within ourselves because things are not as they ought to be. And Lord, I, I pray that we would not um, shelter ourselves from that reality. Um, but Lord, that we would, like we saw in your, your word today, that we would actually be able to look it in the eyes as conquerors. That, Lord, uh, I, you know, a, a bullet can take my life. A drunk driver can take my life. Cancer can take my life. Any number of things, Lord, can, can end my, my, my living and breathing. But, Father, you have given us a hope so rich, so lasting, so wonderful, so overwhelming that, that, Lord, no suffering can possibly take it away, that no amount of evil can even, can even make a dent. And, Father, that's where we root ourselves today. And I pray that we, as we look at this just very darkened world, as we look in a special way today at what, what's happened in this little town of Sutherland Springs to the church, such an awful, unthinkable thing, that, Lord, as we grieve with them, our, as, as they are our brothers and sisters, we grieve with them. We call this what it is. This is, this is true suffering. There's nothing I can imagine quite like this. But, Lord, we also hope with them. That we hope with them. That we, 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 there's a courage, Father, that comes to us because our, the, the person that we follow, the person that we have placed our faith in, he was unjustly killed. He was wrongly accused. He suffered in greater ways than we can ever imagine. And yet, Lord, you raised him to eternal glory. You promised to do the same for us, Father. Give us courage in that. Give us courage that, Lord, when we face an evil world that we don't despair, we don't retreat, Father, because we have every resource to face it, and even to walk right through it, Father, knowing your perfect promises for us. Um, Lord, give us, give us the, the kind of courage that we refuse to just build comfort into our lives so that we don't have to um, face reality. Lord, don't call us to an easy and coddled existence. Lord, call us to follow Christ, even though that means a life of difficulty, a life of trial. Um, we will be glorified with him. And the more, Lord, that we, that we endure with hope the, 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 the momentary afflictions of our lives, Father, the more we will share in his glory and the more we'll be conformed to his image. Father, root us so deeply in those promises that... Um, that, Lord, we, that we become truly a, 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 the kind of people that can't be explained, that can't be understood. We are Christians. And, Father, that is, that is something that, um, that allows us, Lord, to, to navigate this life with a courageous hope. And so we thank you for that truth in Jesus' name. Amen.